I want to start today by thinking about metaphors. A metaphor is something which represents or is symbolic of something else. Here's, here's a few metaphors. Uh, life is a highway. Uh, here's one parents have probably used before. This place looks like a bomb has hit it. Uh, you broke my heart. You are a chicken. Those kids are little monkeys. Uh, metaphors take something that uh, you know and, used, uh, and, and it gets used to explain something else. They don't explain everything, but they make some kind of aspect clear. So take God, for example. Um, God's the great one. He is uh, interested in us knowing him, but this immediately gets tricky because he's so vast and beyond everything that we know as physical, spiritual beings. Um, you know, that's why sometimes you, uh, you read scripture and you kind of feel like you swam off the continental shelf. You know, there's another metaphor for you. Because all of a sudden it just gets really deep and you just go, man, that, that is deep and profound, so deep and profound it's crazy. So what does God do? Well, one of the things that God does throughout scripture is he uses metaphors to help you to understand him. And in one sense, Romans 1 teaches us that all of creation is a metaphor. Uh, some classic ones which you would know is Jesus is the bread of life. Uh, Jesus is the living water. Uh, John 15, I am the vine. That's what I am. Um, but there's a problem with metaphors, and specifically there's a problem with metaphors when it comes to God. Uh, they can throw up some really tricky things. And one of the things they throw up is that they don't capture everything. And the other thing is that in a fallen world, there's some metaphors that God uses that can be less than helpful sometimes and less than impressive in our estimation because of our experience of that particular metaphor. There's a kind of clash between our perception of God and our perception of whatever that thing is. And it isn't that there's a problem with God. It's that we're living in a broken world and God's grabbed a metaphor to use to describe and explain something about him to you, himself to you, and it's clashing with your experience of it. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, scripture says very clearly that God's a king. God is a king. Now, now this is interesting, right? Uh, because those who know the history well enough know that you don't have to look very far to find some really bad kings. And I'm not even talking about the Bible. I'm talking about since Bible times. In the last 2,000 years, there's some really, really bad kings. And then if you go into the kings of the Old Testament, there's lots of really really bad kings and so you could go up to someone and you could say God's a king and they go what the really <laughs> is he one of those and you could end up kind of thinking God are you sure that you want to describe yourself as a king is, is that do you want to roll that way here's another one uh, God is a shepherd now for us we just go, oh, cool, shepherds look after the sheep, right? Because most of us don't have any connection directly to a shepherd or even any bad shepherds. But I can tell you, as much as there's bad kings, there's bad shepherds, right? And there would be people in the world where if you say God's a shepherd, they go, woo, woo. The shepherds I know are not cool. They'd probably hesitate with that. Um, to summarise, the closer the metaphor is to your experience and the more personal the experience of its brokenness, the harder it is for you to understand um, the metaphor the way that God intends it to be. Unless, of course, you had a good example. If you have a good example, it's, 
It's, um, it's very simple. And so I want to talk about a couple more metaphors that God uses in Scripture to describe things, which are very, um, very personal. Uh, here's, here's what we're talking about is one of them is family. Um, and some of you go, wow. <laughs> right off the bat. Now we're in trouble, right? Um, you know, try and find a perfectly functional family. There, there isn't one, right? Uh, our, our families have a massive effect on us. Um, and, I mean, Ange and I kind of joke and are serious about the fact that our kids will need a restore group one day. All right? They'll need to work through some stuff and some baggage that we've given them um, as, we've, uh, as we've brought them up. There's been a bunch of good things, but there's been some difficult things. Uh, let me give you a second one, and this is directly connected to family, is that um, God's a father. I wonder what thoughts are zinging around in your head now. Because every dad's broken and fallen. But there are some especially broken and fallen dads who do some very hurtful and wicked things to people. They leave a real imprint on their kids. Sometimes they profoundly affect their kids. You know, and it, and it can be a real struggle. And that's why there's been lots of books written about trying to understand God as your father when you've had a bad father or a, or a fallen father who kind of twists the way that you see things. I mean, I think that there's a few things going in your favour. I think that there are still good fathers to look at and observe, even if your dad wasn't a good one. And I think most of the time when I talk to people who have had uh, dads that are, weren't very good dads, they kind of knew the bits about their dads that weren't good. Even if they didn't know what the good bit was supposed to be, they kind of could identify what wasn't good. And so when we look at Scripture and we look at the metaphors that God uses, we need to understand that when God scoops up the idea of family and father, he's not scooping everything about our experience of those things up into the bucket. Um, there's, a, there's a sense in which God wants us to draw from what we see, some understanding of the way he operates, but he's also wanting to come in over the top and inform the way that those things are meant to be, where they're out of line, where they're not running well. So when God uses a metaphor, it's, it's always two-way traffic. <laughs> what can we observe that's helpful to understanding it and how does God want to teach us about how it's supposed to be? Does that make sense? I want to start with the last one today. Um, this one. Uh, God is a father. This is the primary way God is identified. Uh, in scripture one of the most primary ways uh, you see it in spades in the gospel of john it's sprinkled through the old testament but it's very very prominent in the new testament um, and what we see in scripture is a whole bunch of things about how god expresses his fatherhood uh, god's a father who is measured authoritative non-coercive loving present wise, involved, strong, protective, firm, faithful, attentive. This is the God who's at the centre of everything. He's a father. He's a good father. And so it makes no surprise, it comes as no surprise to us that when we get to Genesis 1, 26 to 27, uh, this father... Um, with the, the other members of the Trinity creates humanity. 
and specifically makes humanity in his own likeness. Uh, and God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. That we are image bearers is huge. It sets us apart from all the other animals. We're in this place where we can commune with God and we can be relationally connected with God, unlike an aardvark can. Um, we're hardwired to him. That's what the image of God is. But if you go to Genesis 5, you actually find out what uh, image and likeness is actually connected to. And it's in a genealogy. Uh, quite a surprise. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Listen to this language. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. See those two same words again that we saw back in Genesis 1, image and likeness. Where does it show up? Oh, in family. God created Adam and Eve because he wanted children. He didn't need children, but he wanted children. Uh, humanity was in God's family. That's what being made in his image means. They were made to have a relationship with him, to be in communion with him. It's central to understanding what it means to be made in God's image. And you have to understand that way, way, way back, before sin came into the world, way before anything was even created, God was Father. He was Father. And he's a good and perfect Father. And he creates children. That's what he does. And then Genesis 3 comes along, uh, the fall of humanity. There was a point in human history where we turned our backs on our father. And we said to him, we don't want to be in your family anymore. Their actions in disobeying God in Genesis 3 said they didn't want to follow him as father anymore. Now, there's a legal process in Australia by which you can do this. It's called emancipation. So kids can actually go to court and they can say, I want to divorce my parents. Um, but the reasons are really high, um, intense reasons that you need to put forward to qualify for this. The parents need to be incapacitated or they need to have abandoned their child or there needs to be harm or high-end kind of abuse of some kind. Basically, the parents have to be absent or really harmful to their kids to get divorced by the kids. None of that was the case in the garden. God was neither absent, negligent, nor harmful. And Adam and Eve said, we're out. We want to do something else. Uh, he instructed them on what he wanted them to do. They ignored it and they went their own way. And it really is the story of the lost son, the lost daughter. Really. Um, and I want you to see something that is the effect of turning away. And we actually see it in the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 verse 5 to 6 they have dealt corruptly with him listen to this they are no longer his children because they are blemished they're crooked and twisted it's the effect of walking away from God and turning on him is a walking away from family and a walking away from the father that's what it is sounds a bit like the garden right um, and notice what happens in the garden after Adam and Eve have turned away from God uh, and we actually see this in Genesis 3, verse 8. And Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The father, the good and perfect father, is walking in the garden, probably in the afternoon when the cool winds are, are blowing. Um, and what are Adam and Eve doing? 
They're hiding. Why are they hiding? Because they've done the wrong thing and they're afraid. And I want to ask the question uh, of you, just a a reflection question. Um, How do you think they're viewing God at this point? Think they see him as a loving father? A policeman? A judge? They hear his footsteps and they hear someone coming to bust them? I mean, I don't have time to uh, spend on this, but if you look at the way that God talks to them, it doesn't sound like a policeman or a judge. It doesn't take much imagination, I don't think, to hear it as the words of a father. He says to them, where are you? Uh, in the conversation, he says, uh, who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? He talks to the woman and says, what is this that you've done? It doesn't take too much imagination to hear the, the tone of a father there, I don't think. But this is the way they began to view God. Uh, and it's often the way that we view God. Um, this is why people keep writing books about God's goodness. Because <laughs> we don't believe it. We're in the bushes and, and we, we look at God differently. He's not a good and perfect and loving father. Here's a section from Julie Canlis on Calvin's teaching on the effects of the fall and the way that it twisted our view of God as father. Calvin summarises, she quotes Calvin, no one now experiences God as father. Our assumption that God wants something from us rather than to be with us is a mark that our emotions have not yet come under the transformation from slaves to children. Where do you go with that? Given Calvin's own acquaintance with anxiety, so Calvin's mum died when he was young and his dad who was disconnected from him, died uh, a little while after that. Given Calvin's own acquaintance with anxiety, it should come as no surprise that his interpretation of the fall involves a fall into fear. We're not talking about the fear of God. We're talking about the fear of God coming after us and doing harm to us. The tragedy of Adam, at least in Calvin's estimation, was that in place of love, now is terror. God comes to us as father, but we now misinterpret those very things by which he would draw us to himself. Instead, regarding him as adverse to us, we in turn flee from his presence. It captures it pretty well, right? Um, this is the challenge and it's, it's interesting for those who know their church history that this is coming from a guy who people think is pretty fire and brimstone, right? Check this out. I'm going to read you this quote from one of uh, Calvin's sermons in Deuteronomy, right? And it's, for those who know their church history pretty well, this is a head spinner. Right, that Calvin's saying this. You ready? God of his own nature is inclined to allure us to himself by gentle and loving means. God is like a father going about to win his children by being merry with them and by giving them all that they desire. If a father could always laugh with his children and fulfill their desires, all his delight would be in them. Such does God show himself to be toward us. Now, you might want to add some qualifiers in there, right? Some of you probably even right now, you're just kind of going, give them all their desires, I want to qualify that, I want to understand, you know, dot, dot, dot. But here's my encouragement to you, is, is just let what Calvin's saying here push you a bit. 
Just, just let it push you a bit. Uh, this is a guy who's pretty full on. Many people kind of divide from each other over some of the stuff that he's written. Real fire and brimstone guy, and he's saying this. God is like a father going about to win his children by being merry with them and by giving them all that they desire. Is that the way you see him? Is he, is he that kind of father? How, how much of you is in the bushes? <laughs> and I'm not doing that to be annoying or for you to feel bad about it, but how much of you needs to be exposed to the, the love and the grace and the kindness of God your father? We track through further in uh, the biblical story and we see God brings his children, his Australian, back into relationship with him. Uh, he chooses the people of Israel and he calls uh, the people of Israel his, uh, his son through the Old Testament. We see it in Exodus 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. You see what's going on there? That's a defensive dad going on there. Let my son go or I'm coming after yours. Maybe some of you didn't have a dad like that. Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So even though God calls Israel his son, God's son Israel is a wayward son. And you can see this in the, uh, the following verses from Hosea, the prophet, in uh, Hosea 11, verse 2 to 3. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, the idols, and burning off offerings to idols. Listen, there's tenderness here. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. It's so tender, right? So God had this... Um, this son, in inverted commas, Adam and Eve, who went away, said, we don't want to be in your family anymore. Then he had this son, Israel, and Israel went away. Uh, what does he do next? Well, he loves those he's made and he loves his children, even though they're estranged from him. So what does he do? He sends his son, <laughs> capital S, he sends his son, his one and only son. But for what purpose? Well, Paul's actually, Paul actually tells us the purpose of him sending his son in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He's on the same gig. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's classic God the Father, isn't it? My children are estranged from me, so I'm going to come for them. Um, so Jesus, God's son, comes and he dies on a cross so that you can be his son or daughter again. You get adopted back in. And the way that he does it is by joining us to Jesus. If you go to um, Ephesians 1, uh, Paul kind of explodes in, I think, the, I think it's the uh, longest Greek sentence in the New Testament. 
And one of the key parts of it is being adopted. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So what happens is God, uh, the Father, adopts you and the way that you get in is by being connected to Jesus. That's how you get in. Um, you get joined to him. And notice who Jesus is in the words of Paul there at the end of verse 6. Um, he's beloved. So what do you reckon happens if you get stuck to the beloved one and you're in union with the beloved one? You are beloved. There's no other way they can be. That's just how it is. And so you go back, and I remember a little while ago meditating on the baptism of Jesus and just sitting there thinking it through and chewing it through and praying it through. And, and, and look at this from Matthew 3, verse 16 to 17. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So your Father, Son and Holy Spirit. All three of them are always in on it together. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now, if the Father says this about the Son, and you're joined to the Son, He says it about you. Can you get your head around it? Can you imagine God saying that to you? This is my beloved son. With whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved daughter. With her, I'm well pleased. Can you receive it? You should. You should. This raises the, um, the last part of what I'm wanting to share with you this morning is how, how, how do you get there, you know? Because maybe you, you sit there and you just go, well, I can't imagine God saying that to me. And I'll, I can't get there, Pete. I, I can't. I'm struggling to see God as the loving Father that you're speaking about that would actually be merry with me, all right? I mean, my kids probably would never think I'm merry with them. Um, but we laugh, right? We sit at the table and we have lots of laughs and I'm sure that all of you have done that, either with your parents or with your kids or both. But here's the good news that I've uh, got for you this morning is God doesn't just leave you on your own to try and stir up a feeling of sonship or daughtership and that God's pleased with you. Um, and... and That's a really good thing because I think the way that all of us view God and how that's been informed by our our fathers is a a key battleground for us. That in the garden, right, we we are all in the garden at some level where we're just going, is God for me or is he against me? And if we think he's against you, us, we'll be in the bushes. But if we know that he's for us, we'll come out of the bushes even if we've done the wrong thing. And we need to change the way that we view 
God is God friend or foe and the good news is that God does not leave you alone to do this scripture is very very clear about the way that he helps you with this Um, we see this in John 14 Jesus says I wonder if anyone can give an amen to this I will not leave you as orphans I'm not going to leave you alone and isolated that's why it's good for us to be like that with other people we get to live out God's heart for people who are alone isolated and feeling and and trying to make their lives work like an orphan I will not leave you as orphans I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more but you will see me because I live you also will live how's he going to help them in that day what day is he talking about and he's talking about the day when the Holy Spirit comes you will know that I'm in my father and you in me and I in you and do you know this whole idea that Helping us not to be orphans is the Spirit's job. Just looms really large in Paul's writings, particularly in Romans and Galatians. You know, it's, and this is what you've got to get a handle on, is that God's not just interested in you being designated as children. He wants you to have the experience of being children. All right? Not just designated as a son, but the experience of sonship. Not just designated as a daughter, but the experience of being a daughter. I quoted from Galatians a little bit earlier. Here's the next two verses. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And what does the spirit do? He causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You're in on everything. So you know what our task is, with the help of the Spirit, as God's children, is to plumb the depths of God's fatherly love for us for the rest of our lives. And be kids, they don't hide in the bushes, but know that their father loves them, and they come out, and they come out quickly. This is what... uh, the Apostle John writes about in 1 John. <laughs> See what kind of love the Father has given to us? We get to be called his children. And so what we do is we look away from ourselves to who God is. This is actually where we draw our identity from. This is going to be really, really, really important when we get to November when I'm talking about sex and sexuality. Because our highest identity is not gender and it's not sexual orientation. That's not the stuff that we get identified by. That's not the stuff that tells us who we are. You know what tells us who we are? We're children of God. God tells us who we are. That's the top. One more quote from Julie Canlis. Calvin was no stranger to fear. He knew the fragility of abandonment. He knew how difficult it is to trust and dare call upon him as father. And so he understood that the Spirit's most difficult work in our lives is to persuade us to act like children. (laughs) This is profound. I think it's profound. To trust and pray like children, to delight in God's fatherhood and to receive this good news in the depths of our being. There's your task. There's your homework for this week and next week and the week after 
till you die. Just keep doing that. Just keep learning how to be a child and responding to God as your father. So I started with family and I want to end here with family. <laughs> can, you, uh, can you see what has happened? Uh, we are in, in the most, the most mind-blowing of ways, aren't we? And, you know, we get used to this stuff, but one day when Jesus comes back, our brains are just going to be blown. Not literally, but they're going to be blown because you're just going to go, really? Really, me? You'd have me? Not alone and orphaned anymore? In the family again? And partaking of everything the family has to offer? My kids just own our house. Well, not literally, but they're just in there and they're just into everything and they just do stuff and if they want food, they just go and get food from the fridge and get lots of food from the fridge. I was thinking about this. It's just, that's, that's what family is, right? We're all in on it. You know, and one of them goes into the shower. The other one wants to have a shower. So what do they do? They go and they get the towel and they go into the ensuite shower. Uh, next to Ange and my bedroom and they and they got two showers going at once. Why? Because it's 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 we're all in. It's it's family. When you when you're family, you're in on stuff. And that's that's what scripture talks about with being heirs. Um, you see, we we are not just saved from sins. God is up to something far bigger, and it's massive to be saved from sins, but God is up to something far bigger than being saved from sins. He's up to you being in a family and him being your father and plumbing the depths of that. So it doesn't make much sense to speak of being your own person. There's no such thing as a human identity in isolation. To be saved is to be joined to Jesus, is to be God's child, is to be in God's family. So we're all in it together, folks. And this is why the New Testament speaks regularly of God the Father. It speaks of brothers and sisters and the church being God's household because that's what the church is. It's his family. And let me just say this. There's a lot that could be said about the fact that God's family is not perfect and you better believe it is not. And there are people in the church and there are people who aren't in the church that have been hurt quite badly by the church. And I want to say to you that the hope of the church is not that it will get its act together at some point in time. Because as good as you can get it, and to be honest, it's running pretty good at Restoration Church at the moment, as good as you can get it, it's not perfect and it's going to be disappointing. What's the hope of the church? That we're going to get some good pastor who's never going to get anything wrong? That we're going to get a few pastors that never get anything wrong? Are we going to have elders that always make every decision right? That we have people in small groups, like in community groups together, who don't sin against each other? That's not going to happen. You get into a community group and there's more and more of them forming in the church here and I can guarantee you're going to sin against each other. And the scripture teaches that we need to forgive one another and the reality is that there's a bunch of you who aren't close enough to be sinned against. All right, And so you're actually not close enough the way that God wants you to be. 
But is our goal that we get these perfect community groups where everyone really likes each other and no one really gets up each other's noses and annoys each other? No. You know what the hope of God's family is? The Father. That's the hope of the family. He's in the family. God's in the midst of it. And it makes all the difference, doesn't it? God, thank you for inviting us in. Thank you for bringing us in. It's a a beautiful thing that you would uh, pay the price to bring us in, to join us to yourself. Help us to to grow better um, and to plumb the depths of uh, seeing you as a loving father. Would you make that our life's task? That we would be children who don't hide in bushes because of a warped view of you, but we would be children who would come out of hiding and be changed by your love for us. Amen.